0: I'm Hillary. And I'm Sandra. Coming up on the Quick and the Dirty podcast, we're going to talk to an addiction therapist who actually married a junkie, and she wrote a book about it. She shares her story
1: of getting him clean and saving their marriage.
0: The Quick and the Dirty podcast with Hillary Welch and Sandra
2: Plagakis.
0: So, Hillary, have you ever had a wardrobe malfunction? I've had every kind of malfunction, Sandra. <laughs> and from emotional to physical. Yes, I have. <laughs> when you think of wardrobe malfunction, the first, first thing you think of is your boob popping out, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, they're the
1: most jiggly of things. Like of things that are going to pop out, they're more likely to pop out on their own, whereas others need to be placed.
0: That's right. Like my vagina has never actually popped out of anything now that I think about right. it. But my boob is now officially popped out twice in my life. You know what?
1: Speaking of vaginas popping out, the reason mine doesn't pop out is that I have such thick thighs that even if I flashed it, you couldn't see through them. <laughs> They'd just still be hidden. It's like nature's protection for my clumsiness.
0: <laughs> you know what they say, uh, Hillary? Thick thighs save lives. <laughs> Other people's and vaginas. eyes, actually. They save eyes. <laughs> They save eyes, lives, and vaginas. It's a true story. <laughs> Look it up. So your boob popped out? My boob popped out. I was at a, a fashion show the other day. And by the way, can I just say, I'm not one to ever walk in a fashion show because I'm not comfortable doing that. I'm a curvy girl. I'm not easy to dress. I'm very particular in what I put on my body. But I agreed to do it. And uh, I wore a low-cut, vavoom kind of a gown. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was like, it was all boobie. Right. And your and, boobs uh, are
1: literally the
0: size of my head each. That's right. Each boob is the size of one head. Is that what you're saying? Right. Wow. (laughs) They're like, when
1: I motorboat you, they're earmuffs. Like,
0: (laughs) sometimes I have to call in people to go and save you. I know. I call the jaws of life are needed. Uh, yeah, so we're we're in a fashion show. Okay, so my boob didn't pop out during the fashion show. Okay, it it popped out when we did a group photo in front of one of those little photo machines. Oh yeah. So it's like three, two, one, and then you you're off. So there's ten of us trying to squeeze into the picture, <laughs> uh uh-huh. and. Of course, like it, like being the tallest one, like an mm-hmm. idiot, I get in the front, uh-huh. so I have to do the the lean, right? And and then suddenly ten of you turns into twelve of you That's because right. you have two heads in your shirt. And, I just, <laughs> and right at the moment where it's like, cheese, I, I will say this: it wasn't like a full nipple that came out, but like I'm going to say, eighty-seven percent of my my tit was. <laughs> so it was nipple, It wasn't that? just like boob and bra. It was all, it was, I, it stopped right at the nip, but I had, I don't even know how my nipple, my, my nipple must be crazy low, but it was like, I don't know how my nipple didn't completely pop out, Okay. but the picture, but the picture was so like bad that I had to um, actually edit it before I put it on social media and cover it because you saw it. It was too much.
1: It was, a, well, it's just cause you have so much to give. Like if, if that much of my boob popped out, you'd be
0: like, oh, that's a little cleavage. But because yours are so ample, you're like, wow, that's a lot. It was it was like too much to put on social media. But that was actually the second time my boob has popped out. The first time my boob popped out was full boob. And that was during an aqua size class <laughs> in, in a swimming pool in Jamaica. You know, uh, you know, when they do when you go to those all inclusives and they do those like swimming aerobics oh, classes yeah, in the yeah, morning. Yeah. So you don't feel guilty about drinking and eating your face off? Okay. So were you like like, doing jumping jacks in a pool or something? That's exactly what I was doing. And the the motion and the waves that I created knocked my own top off. (laughs) Did you get a black eye? Like it, did it come right up and get you? You bitch! <laughs> <laughs> you bitch! You know I did. You know I got. What I was. It was. It was the, the 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 splash that my own boob made on the water <laughs> was just embarrassing enough.
1: I feel for you. We had a friend in high school who um, her name is Kristen. She's a lovely girl, but we were also jealous because she had the biggest rack that we called her Kristen Triple E Judge. <laughs> and they oh. were so big that, like, we'd have slumber parties and we'd be like jumping on the bed and they would clap. <laughs> and it was pure I jealousy. And now, like, I, going back, too. she knew yeah. we were just jealous and have fun. She knew it wasn't good, it was just with our close friends. We wouldn't do that to her in public or anything, but.
0: Of course not. Whatever. I mean, but now you're, yeah, my boobs. I can make my boobs clap if I really want to, but (laughs) it's still, it's still dangerous for the people around me. So how do you feel? Like, uh,
1: did other people take a memento photo? Like, did they keep it? Or is this just a you thing? Nine other,
0: yeah. Nine other people have it. And uh, so far I've seen it on everybody's story. And I can handle it on a story because it's going to go away in 24 hours. Did they censor it? (laughs) No. No, they didn't. (laughs) I know what it's going to be like. Who's the hoe in the front? Did you feel like hands up? It's me, I the hoe. I'm the hoe, and and the weirdest thing is that like I'm the oldest hoe there because the, the other ladies in the fashion show are all like forty and under, mm-hmm. and I'm like I'm pushing fifty, and I'm like the hoe. Now. It's like yeah, girls, that's how we roll. Well, that's because you're at the don't give a fuck stage. I'm. It's the new rebellion, having your tip pop out. <laughs> is it? Tell everybody. <laughs> The accidental rebellion is what it is. But you've had your boobie out. Oh,
1: yeah. The worst is when it happens. So I go swimming a lot with our kids. And, well, they're not my kids. They're my boyfriend's kids. And my
0: swimsuits. I think it's cute that you call them your kids, though. That's adorable. Uh,
1: Let's get back to boobs, Sandra. Enough being adorable. (laughs) Uh, I have uh, (laughs) taken a dive in the swimming pool and come up and had them both be out. And there is no horror like 10 and 12-year-old uh, pre-teen horror when like a parent <laughs> pops a nip like there is so, no yeah I have done I've only known these kids for four years and I have scarred them enough
0: so, wait a second they've seen you like like
1: they've seen my you, nipple
0: yeah mm-hmm. they've seen you well I mean and were they, did they actually audibly scream or could you just see it on their face? It's
1: more the look of terror. I don't think they were capable of speaking, which, you know what, at the end of the day, I think that that's wrong. I think
0: women's bodies are women's bodies. And like, I don't care. I think it's 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 interesting, though, that we have those young girls who see a boobie and they immediately feel shame and all of those emotions. And I grew up feeling that, too. Like when I saw a pair of boobs or my mom once went topless in our backyard our own backyard pool. She took her top off to sunbathe and she was with her sisters, but the the fence wasn't tall enough. So the neighbors could see her and she didn't care. She's European. She didn't bother. And I remember being so mortified that other people could see my mother's breasts. And I, I, now i know that like 40 something sandra completely gets it she doesn't care but but 15 year old sandra was i i thought i was going to die i thought i was going to die that other people were looking my could potentially see my mom's boobs do
1: you think the problem is that because we've been made to feel like our bodies are weird, we only see what's on TV? And that is such an unrealistic idea of what the
0: female figure looks like. Like, they all look the same on TV. Well, and part of it, yes. And part of it, too, is that we've sexualized boobs so much that the idea of seeing our mother that way and having other people see our mothers that way and ourselves that way, it's it's mortifying. Heads up, your boobs are sexy AF. I'm just going to say they're real and they're spectacular and they're all
2: yours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's time to get down
1: to the dirty. This is uh, going to be a really eye-opening podcast about addictions.
0: Imagine how hard it would be if you knew your partner was struggling with an addiction. That's pretty tough. But imagine how ironic it would be if you were an addiction coach. On this episode, we welcome addiction coach uh, Dr. Callie Estes. She and her husband Tim have co-authored the book, I Married a Junkie, put to the ultimate test by addiction, love, and life. And it's a pretty incredible story. We're really excited to welcome today to the Quick and the Dirty podcast, Dr. Callie Estes. Hello. Hello.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you tell your story and talk about the book a little bit. It must be really difficult to, uh, first of all, be in a relationship with a junkie, but then to also be a therapist. What made you want to go write a book about that entire experience?
2: So it was actually very interesting. I've been in this industry in terms of like therapy and addiction for 25 years. I stepped out for a while, um, did a couple other things because it's a stressful type job. And when I met my husband, he wasn't into heroin. So we would go out, have a beer or two, wasn't an issue, wasn't a problem, and everything was normal. And then he started doing oxygen and Roxy with a friend of his, and it wasn't out of control. So I didn't notice that he wasn't stealing anything. He always had money. He was always awake. There was sex. Everything was normal. And then it wasn't normal. And when it wasn't normal, that's when I realized, oh, my God, something's wrong. And we kind of, you know, started working at at the issue together, which was Mm -hmm. that he was addicted by that point to heroin because Oxy's and Roxy's went from $3 a pill to $35 a pill. And that's when everybody switched over to heroin at that point. So he was using it. And I kind of went into, you know, how do I get him off of it most? Because he had never done opiates. He had never done downers. That wasn't his thing. And it was totally new. Now, the book came about. After, because a few of my competitors in the industry that I'm in, which is addiction medicine, had started posting negative stuff on Facebook, and they said, how could Callie be a good addiction therapist, or good addiction coach, if her husband is a junkie? And we looked at each other, and by then he was sober, and I said, you know, first of all, these people shouldn't know my personal business, but they do, so how do we combat that? And then they started posting his criminal record and wow. personal stuff and tying it to me. Yeah. So from there, I said, let's put it all in a book. Let's just put it all out there. Everything. You know, his addiction to heroin, his, he got carjacked, he got our BMW stolen, he overdosed, he died, they had to bring him back. Let's put it all out there. And we'll call it, I married a junkie, thanks to my hater who said, how could Callie's husband be a junkie? And bam, we did. And it became a bestseller. <laughs> well, the best way, right,
0: is to get ahead of it, right? And you did. Mm-hmm.
1: So going back to that uh, original, like when you met, he wasn't doing heroin. Did you know about the other, some would say, more minor drug
2: use? Yes. Oh, God, yes. So he would do, he would snort coke here and there. And it didn't bother me for two reasons. First of all, he has severe ADHD. So when he would snort coke, it's like having a normal conversation. When he, he doesn't and he's non-medicated, he's all over the place. And so he would, it would just be here and there. It was never a big deal. It was never over the top. It never cost a lot of money. And there wasn't an issue. And we would go out, we'd have a glass of wine, a couple of beers, and not an issue. So there was never really a problem. And when he got a hold of the heroin, it's like his body said, hey, this is awesome. You know, I need this. I need this every single day. And then it's downward spiral was fast with that. With that.
0: How long did it take from the time that he, you know, had escalated from the minor stuff to the big stuff before you noticed, do you think?
2: From the opiates, from oxys and to heroin, less than three months. It was that fast. He, I was in Vegas when I knew. So he had been doing it on and off here in Miami. And I had flown to Vegas for work. And I was out there and I called and it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And he answered the phone and he sounded drunk. And I thought, that's bizarre because he doesn't, he's not a drinker. If we go out, it's wine with dinner, you know, maybe a cocktail, nothing special. But I called and I I thought, this is really strange. And then when I called back again, he didn't answer the phone. And I thought, that's even stranger. So by the time I got home, I had noticed things weren't right in the house. He hadn't been going to work. And that's kind of when I figured it out. And it was fast. It was fast. It was like, all right, now we have to get into solving the problem mode. You have to get detox. You have to get a coach. You have to get a therapist. All these things need to happen. They need to happen now. And at first, he didn't want to do them. It was, you know, no, 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 I'm not using it. And I knew right away. So then it was just go mode from there.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting, though, that he tried to deny it off at the offset, which I, I guess would be typical.
2: Yes. Yep. Yep, and he didn't realize the detox process of opiates because he had always done coke. So there's no detox with coke. 72 hours, is out of your system. You're a little sluggish, no big deal. So he was thinking the same thing. I'll just stop using. And he stopped using and he got violently ill. He was throwing up, he had diarrhea, he had the night sweats, he had insomnia, um, brain fog, adidonia. And he just, he's like, I don't understand this. And I said, well, this is opiate. This is opiate detox. And he's like, yeah, but this isn't like cocaine. And I said, no, you're in a whole other classification of drugs. It's the complete opposite of cocaine. And he, didn't, he mentally didn't grasp it right away. And then he got caught in the opiate shuffle, which is they used to get high, and then they only use to not get sick. Because as soon as you stop taking it, you have a one-day window where you're fine, and then the next day, it's like the worst stomach flu food poisoning you've ever had and you're down. You're down for three or four days. And then you still don't feel right. And then it takes about three to six months for your body to get back to normal. That's why most opiate addicts never get sober. They can't get past that three to six month window.
1: Do you think knowing what you know about opiates and heroin because of your job, do you think it made it easier or harder for you to watch him deal with addiction?
2: It made it easier because I knew what to look for. I knew what signs to look for, and I knew to get help immediately. So it wasn't like I went, oh, okay, you're using, stop that, go to a meeting. That doesn't work. That's what like 99% of people who have no idea of what addiction is do. And then the addict always says, oh, I'll stop. And the person goes, okay, awesome. And it's like a Hallmark card. That's not accurate. So I knew as soon as I addressed it with him and he denied it, I knew, I had to get him other help because I knew I'm too close to a situation. I'm not going to get him sober. I have to get him a coach. I have to get him a therapist. I, at one point, drug him with me on every trip I went because he couldn't be in the house alone. So everywhere he went, he'd be in the hotel detoxing. And I said to him, you've got to, you know, stop using. But the problem was, and this is going back a few years, we didn't have, Very many choices. Back then, you had methadone. You didn't even have Suboxone right away. All you had was methadone. So, the problem with methadone is you have to be in the same city to dose every day. So, if I would take him to Colorado, he's not here in Miami. He can't dose. He would get sick. So, you can guess dose, but it's a real pain in the ass. So, that was our first problem. So, then he got on Suboxone, which made him even more sick. So, the Suboxone made him sick. He's like, I can't use this. I don't feel good. We broke out in hives. So we had that issue. And then what else do you do for brain support? I mean, even when they get clean and they're not using hair, when they're not using Suboxone and they're not using methadone, their brain's not healed. So I'm going to the DNC. I'm going to vitamin shop. I'm picking and choosing what's going to fix his brain. We've got, you know, 300 bottles of supplements on the counter. And they're not fast acting. Those are things that are going to take three months to get your body, you know, back to normal. So They weren't fast enough. And he's like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And he knows, just like every other opiate addict, if I just snort a little bit of heroin, I'm going to feel amazing. That's all it's going to take. So that was always in the back of his head. And that little bit would always end up into a relapse. And that's the kind of cycle we were in. And then finally, he was able to break the cycle, which took a while to get there. But that's normal for heroin because it's such a physical drug. It's not just mental.
0: It see. It sounds like you knew how to navigate all of this as an addictions coach because you've seen it firsthand multiple times with multiple people. But how did you handle it as a wife? Because it seems to me you you had two hats on here. You were a wife and you were <laughs> a therapist. So I understand how you handled it as a therapist. But how how were you as a wife handling it?
2: Well, in the beginning, I wasn't. So I got myself a coach because I was pissed off, and I said, "You know, how dare you do this to me." I'm out here building my brand and building my company, traveling around, working my butt off, and here you are, you know, laying around doing drugs. I was mad. I was angry, just like every wife would be, you know? You're not doing your husbandly duties. You're not going to work. You're not bringing home an income. You're not doing anything. So I was mad, and I called a friend of mine, and she, you know, she's in the industry as well, and she just said, you need a coach, and you need a coach now, because all you're going to do is yell at him and call him names. And it's not going to help the situation, which is accurate. I mean, as a wife, you want to scream and yell and, you know, break things and however you handle stress. So he was able to say to me, let's get you somebody that can work with you to give you the steps because you're too close to the situation. I mean, I was still angry. I was still hurt. I was mad. Typical emotions that you would feel as a wife if you find out your significant other is, you know, not paying the bills, taking the money, buying drugs, crashing the car. Um, he screwed up our insurance because he crashed the car too many times and he's lucky he didn't kill somebody. So as a wife, it's like you get frustrated and in the beginning you want to fix it. I want to fix this. And then eventually you go, you know what? I'm done. And that's what got him sober. I brought in divorce papers and I packed all his stuff. I didn't yell, didn't scream, just put the divorce papers on the stuff and said, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. I quit. Tap out. And when I did that, he went, oh God, this is for real. So up to that point, I had said, I'm going to file for divorce and I'm going to leave and I'm done. But until I actually did it, it wasn't real to him. And then when I did it, I was at the point where I was like, you know what? You can go. I can replace you in a heartbeat. And when I said that to him, he realized this is the end of the line. And that's when he started to realize, I've got to fix it. No one else is going to do it for me. And it's, you know, I've got to step up and do it. And that's when he got sober.
1: From the time he started his first round of treatment uh, with you, how many relapses were there before he finally hit that moment?
2: Six or seven, maybe eight? A
1: lot.: And, and I how long did telling that telling
2: him, "I don't have another round. I'm done. I can't do this again with you," because his relapses weren't a month. They were six months. And it was always a big event. Like, his father died unexpectedly. He was doing great. We had him sober. Everything was amazing. He's in the band. He's playing. And the night of the show, one of their very first shows, he's a drummer. So he's, he's, you know, on stage. And the phone rang. And they were setting up their stuff. And his brother called, of all things his brother should have waited, and said, Dad's in the hospital. He just went to the hospital. So here he is getting ready to play a show in front of all these people, hundreds of people there. And his brother, his stupid brother, goes and tells him that. So he's not even in the right mindset. But right after, we went right to the hospital, and I knew, I knew his dad was going to die. He had cancer. They diagnosed it, and it was inoperable, and it was already stage four. And we knew probably the dad had too much. And I'm going to myself, oh my god, this is going to be a relapse. So I'm already mentally prepping for this. This is going to happen. This is a big event. And then his other relapse was he was on tour the national, a national man that was going international and there was an issue with his passport and we had to get the passport cleared up, which we did. And we missed the deadline. So he got replaced with one of the guys from fuel and they went to Europe. So I'm like, oh, that's going to be another relapse. So I knew the big stress event that would lead up to the relapse so I could prep for them. It didn't make it any easier and it didn't make it any less crazy when it happened because I couldn't stop it, but I knew it was coming. So I could do certain things. Like I knew when the relapse was coming to hide all the valuables in the house, I went and rented a locker, put everything in there, locked it up. He had no idea where it was. So I knew he couldn't take the stuff out of the house.
0: But as he's relapsing, are you da- you having like dialogue with him too? And you're, you're talking him through the, the, you you know, he's relapsing, you know, he's using again. And you say they lasted six months at a time.
2: Yeah, well, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it wasn't that long. It's sometimes depends on the event, like his father was a big one because it wasn't just. It wasn't just his his dad dying, it was the whole family collapsing because the father was the cornerstone and Tim was his dad's favorite. So when the father got sick, everyone looked at Tim to hold the family together. And he had this, all of a sudden he had this duty that he never had before and he couldn't handle it. And he he just collapsed under the pressure. So you have to remember too, once they get caught in this cycle, they don't want to get sick. So once he's you know trying to get sober, trying to get sober, he's also trying not to get sick. So you've got this like dichotomy of stuff happening at the same time. It's what makes heroin such a different drug. Whereas somebody who does meth or cocaine or alcohol, it's so different than heroin. Because physically, heroin and opiates change your body's chemical structure. The other drugs don't do that. So what I mean by that is, it literally changes your cell membrane. So you become more and more and more addicted every time you touch it. And your body wants it more. So every time there was a relapse, getting him off was twice as hard. So it it got more and more progressively harder. And that's why you see so many people dying from opiates and so many people addicted and so many people stuck on that hamster wheel. It's not like, Okay, you're just going to stop and feel crappy for three days. You're going to stop and feel crappy for the first week. You're going to feel horrendous. And then for the next three to six months, you're still going to feel bad. So he might have three months sober and then go out and try it again just because he didn't feel good. And that might kick off another relapse that lasted, use-wise, maybe seven days. But when I say relapse, I'm talking the detox phase, feeling sick, all of that stuff. Because that comes with it, not just the use, if that makes sense.
1: As a therapist and as a wife, was it difficult on you emotionally? And were you difficult on yourself knowing, like, no matter how hard you tried, you just couldn't fix him?
2: No, as a therapist, I know I can't fix anybody. So one of the first things I tell my clients is I can't control human behavior. So whether you're going to use or not, that's on you. I can give you the tools in the toolbox, but if you sit down, prop your feet up on the toolbox and don't build the house, I'm not going to build it for you. But
1: there must so, have been something inside of you that was like, I should be able to do this. Like, this is what I do for a living. I help people. And how can I not be able to help him?
2: Well, yes and no. That's why I never divorced him. Because I knew on some level, I do this for a living. I can do this. I can, I can make this happen. Um, as a wife, you can't, I I would have to put on my therapy hat because as a wife, you, you just, no matter what you say as a wife, they're going to tell you whatever you want to hear and do whatever they want anyway. But as a therapist, I would say to myself, okay, what are the signs? What are you looking for? What are you missing? And I would go through the scenario just like I would as if I had a client and I would start catching stuff. Okay. You're missing this. You're missing that. Look for this sign. Look for that sign. Check this out. Check that out. You know, in, in the beginning, I would put a tracker on his phone. I wanted to know where he was. So I would use the Family Wear app at T-Mobile and figure out where he was. And then I started driving myself crazy. And I said, you know what? I can't babysit you and do this anymore. And that's when I said, you have to have teams. You have to have people that need, that can do this for you because I can't. And he had a sober coach for a long time that would call him every single morning, Every single afternoon, check in, what are you doing? What did you do? Making sure he's sober, you know, requiring that he go get pee tested, all of that. So I was able to hand that off to somebody and say, Okay, now you take it. Call me if you need me.
1: So then how were you able to deal with your own emotions? Because it sounds like you approached everything really professionally, but there must have been some low times for you. Can you speak to
2: your lowest emotional period? Yeah. So I the the Probably the lowest one would have been when he lied about overdosing and dying. They actually called the death time, and I was at the gym, and I remember calling him, and I couldn't reach him, and couldn't reach him, and I thought this is odd, and then it started going to voicemail, and I'm going okay, and I remember working out, and I still couldn't reach him, and I'm thinking I had no idea where he was. His phone was dead. And six or seven hours went by, and I called again, and the phone was on. And I thought, that's even weirder. And he answered the phone, and he said, I'll be released in a minute. I'll call you back and hung up. And then the phone went dead. And I remember thinking to myself, this is insanity. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's getting arrested. I don't know if he killed somebody. I have no idea. And that was probably my lowest time. And I said to myself, I went off the hamster wheel. I don't think I can do this anymore. It's crazy. So. He called me back about three hours later, and he says, I need you to come get me. Of course, I said, where are you? And he said, I'm at the hospital. And I said, the hospital? Where? And he told me, and I went to get him. And I get there, and he's got no shirt, no shoes, completely filthy. And all well, he had his phone, didn't know where his wallet was. I said, where's the car? He goes, I have no idea. And I said, what happened? He goes, all I remember is I was driving, and I was going to stop for gas, and I got rear-ended by this guy. And I got out of the car and the guy said, pull over to the gas station. So I did. And the guy said, "Uh, you need to pay for my bumper and I'll take cash. So it was one of those scams where you get rear-ended when you're not really rear-ended type deal. So he goes, I got out of the car and I went into the ATM. It's the last thing I remember. Well, I went in and I talked to the shop owner. And what I learned was he got out of the car, left the car running with BMW, went in and went to use the ATM and nodded out because the heroin was tainted with fentanyl. And he was out. So the the shop owner called 911. The guy came in to get his money and the shop owner told him to leave. So the guy panicked and stole the BMW. So that's what went down on the video. And, oh, he doesn't remember any of that. He just knows he woke up in the hospital. And they told him, they gave him three shots of Narcan. The first two did nothing. So they called time of death. And the supervisor for the EMTs just happened to be there in the ambulance. And he said, I'm going to do one more and see what happens. And the last one brought him back. So that was probably the biggest moment for me because he had lied about everything to that point. I didn't know how bad the use was. He was doing 10 bags a day. This ridiculous amount of heroin. And
0: Right. But you must have had such a feeling of betrayal as a wife. Betrayal,
2: anger, resentment. Um hatred at one point? Sure. Oh, yeah. And being Italian, my first instinct was to come home and break everything in the house. That was my first instinct. And I said, no, we're not going (laughs) to do that. girl. We're going to call, you know, call our coach and we're going to bitch. And that's what I did. I called my coach and she said, go vent. And I vented for two hours. How mad I was, how angry I was. You know, I'd never been married before. I want a divorce. I hate men, whatever. I went through the whole thing. And she says, good. Now,
0: how long, by the way, were you married when you hit this point? How long have you been together?
2: Four years, maybe? Yeah, about four years. Right. So still, still
0: newlyweds, really.
2: It was, it was, I was pissed. And I remember I called her and she said, get it all out. And I did. And she goes, now, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm in Florida. If I divorce him, I have to give him half of the bank account. He'll kill himself. And that was my first instinct. And she goes, what do you mean? I'm like, if I give him that much cash, he will go do all the heroin in the world, and die. And she goes, can you put it in trust? So I called an attorney, and he said, no, you can't. If you get a divorce, he's entitled to half the bank account, and that's it, plus alimony. And I'm going, great, i got to give him alimony. So that was such a frustrating time for me. So she said, what are your options? And I called his parents, I called my parents, I put, you know, put it all out there. And what do we do? Well, of course, both sets of parents said you're married. My, my mother and his mother both Catholic, so it was that whole "you're married for life" thing. And I'm like, thanks, guys. That's great information. <laughs> yeah. So nice. that, clearly, that you still voice. loved him. Like you had. I, yeah, I did. And what what stopped me from divorce was the fact that when I met him, he wasn't using heroin. He wasn't a junkie. He wasn't He was normal with the exception of here and there cocaine and a glass of wine with dinner and maybe a beer at the ballgame. That's what stopped me. And I said, I wonder if he can go back to that. And that became my mission is to get him back to that. And I said to myself, I'm going to try. And if I can do it, I'll stay with him. And if I can't, I'm out.
0: There must have been a part of you, though, that that See, I, I'm trying to put myself in your situation, and if I married a man like you did who had the same thing, you know, we drink occasionally, we do uh, recreational drugs here and there, or he does recreational drugs, and then he starts really escalating it. Is there a part of you that felt like, "Am I not good enough?"
2: Never. Never. And I'll tell you why. I grew up with a very weird childhood. My father used to tell me I was stupid, fat and ugly on a daily basis. So there wasn't anything in me, there isn't anything in me that ever says someone else's behavior is a reflection of me. So I know other people's behavior has nothing to do with me. And that's because of the way I was bullied so much as a child. So when we were married, or we are married, when we were together in the heroin days, I never said this is my fault or, and, and most women would do that. They would internalize it because in his youth, he would tell me, if you weren't such a bitch, I wouldn't use. I'm like, please, that's, That's not even close to accurate. Like I knew that. So having my training and having been bullied, I was able to step back and say, you're wrong. You know, I know your bad behavior is not a reflection of me. However, most women would have internalized that and said if I was a better wife, if I cooked more, if I cleaned more, if I did this more, he wouldn't have done drugs. And that is not accurate. So I tell all my women, that are married and all my men that are married to people using, please don't blame yourself. There's nothing you could have done different, should have done different to make them not use. You have no control over that.
1: For sure. But there must be every time that he or whoever chooses drugs over saving their marriage or over their commitment to you or their love for you, that must eat away at you.
2: No. I'll tell you why. Because... The addicted brain isn't choosing drugs over me. It's not me or drugs. Right,
1: but you're talking to me like a, a therapist, but there must have been a moment where you had those feelings as a wife.
2: No? No, because I know someone else's behavior is not a reflection of me. Now, I was angry. I was mad. I was let down. I was disappointed. I was pissed. But I knew there's nothing I could have done different to stop him from picking up those drugs in the first place or using or overdosing. There's nothing I did personally just to push him off the ledge. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that may be my my training as as a therapist, but I would think the average wife would go, what did I do wrong? And, And parents do this too. If their kid's using drugs, they say, I'm a bad parent. I parented wrong. I did something wrong. And that's not necessarily true. Because we have to look at the addicted brain. The addicted brain gravitates towards certain drugs as a coping mechanism. So my husband's coping mechanism to deal with stress is to take drugs. That's the solution. So if I look at that and say you're picking a bad solution, pick a better solution to deal with this. That's sort of how I work, I guess, as a therapist. But I kind of went into that mode even as a wife, and said you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and then. The therapists and coaches that came along said the same thing I did. So it kind of created a unified front. How
0: long uh, has it been since Tim relapsed?
2: Two and a half years.
0: And is there a part of you that is worried that it's going to happen again? And if it does, how is it going to affect your marriage? I mean, do you have another round in
2: you? <laughs> um, so I've already told him I'm out. If there's another relapse, I'm done. I'm not doing it again. I'm tapped out. So there's that. And as a wife, you always wonder, what if? What if something happens with a big stressor and we end up where we started? You know, his mother's 80. What happens when his mother dies? You know, those kinds of stuff. So, yes, I sit back and go, what if we get there again? Uh, But I can't live in the what if. I have to live in the now. And I have to live in the future. And I know I've done everything I could to get us here that if he chooses to go down that path again, he's going by himself. So I've been very clear with him that that's the direction I'm going to go.
0: Even knowing, though, that as you explained, that an, addictive, an addicted brain is different, even knowing that in many ways it's just it's an addicted brain thinking sometimes, not uh, a regular brain. I'm sorry, I don't know how else to describe it, but yeah. even knowing that he, he, it's, it's, he's on his own.
2: Correct, and, and that's because I went off Crazy Town, because I was on the Crazy Town train with him, and for the wives that listen to your show and the partners, being in that Crazy Town, you can only do that so much. Your world is completely upside down. Everything you think that you can grasp onto isn't even reality, so things like your partner saying to you, I paid the rent, don't worry about it, great. Until you find out there's an eviction notice on your door and you're going what? (laughs) So you can't trust them. You can't believe them. Um, Your whole world is completely upside down. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I've already told him, I feel like I've been together 11 years now. I've already given you 11 years of my life. I'm not going to do this again with you.
1: When you are first starting to reestablish your relationship after he got clean for the last time. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you start to rebuild that trust in everything from, like, knowing that he's going to pay the rent to investing emotionally in somebody?
2: So the first thing I did was take over the entire financial. So I handle everything so that I know for a fact rent is paid, car payments paid. I've got under my control. That's done.
1: So you take the trust out of
2: it? That's gone because I don't trust you at this point. I don't, you know, you've been using on and off. I don't believe what you tell me is going to be accurate. The only person I know I can rely on is me. So financially, I'm going to make sure I take care of everything I need to take care of by myself. And if you flounder on your end, that's your problem. That's the first thing I did. So I financially protected myself. The second thing I did was. Little bits and pieces of trust. So we have a joint credit card. I put a limit on. And when you hit that limit, you don't get any more money. That's it. So it had to be almost like parenting, which sucks. Because I, I went from having a partner to, to having a child that I'm parenting.
1: For sure. But and taking it away from the money, away from the other stuff, what about the emotional trust that it takes to actually have a marriage with somebody? How do you invest... Um, on an intimacy level again.
2: That's tough because you're looking for the crash. You're looking for when is it all going to fall down again? So it may be, you know, for me, it took almost a year to even be, you know, to feel like I had my partner back. And that was a long time. And you have to remember, too, you're investing all this time while they're using, you're investing all this time to bring the marriage back. At some point, you're like, oh, my God, I've spent more of my life dealing with this nonsense and then trying to reverse the nonsense. Like, where is my partner? Where is my other half? That's why most women give up, because it's so frustrating. And I completely understand that.
0: Uh, can, let's talk about your reputation for a second, because you were worried that, uh, having this information get out would ruin your reputation. So you wrote a book to sort of get ahead of it and clear the air too, and to tell the real story and sort of shut down the rumors and innuendos. Does this give you more credibility as an addictions coach with other, with, with potential clients?
2: Funny enough, because you've, but, cause so, you've lived it, right? Yeah. So my PR person told me it would be career suicide. He said, do not publish that book. She cautioned me against it. She said, it will tank your career. Of course I did it anyway. And when I put it out there, I got on TV. It was the first time I had been, I'd been on CNN before, but I actually got on TV for the book. And people said, this is such a unique thing where you have this therapist, this addictions coach that's out there doing all this stuff and her husband's using drugs. Like how bizarre is that? So people liked the story and they liked how, we both overcame, you know, this issue and how I stayed in the marriage because most people wouldn't have done that. So it was such a unique platform and people like it. Clients love it. They love it. And it's a very dirty story. Like we you know, I drop the F bomb constantly. My husband doesn't curse. I'm like, you know, a sailor. So it's all over. And when people read it, they're like, I feel like I'm in the story. I'm with you guys in the story and I'm watching this happen and I see your personality and his personality and because we, you know, we do our picture and our story and our picture and our story. So it's done very differently. So we got really good feedback on the, on the book.
0: What about, your, what about your sex life? How do you have sex with a junkie?
2: Well, when they're doing heroin, you're not. You better buy someone well. online because <laughs> they, don't, they have no sex drive. That was my biggest gripe, believe it or not. That was my biggest problem. I kept saying, you know, I got to get laid here. What's going on? And <laughs> when he cleaned up, it all comes back. And it comes back a hundred times more intense than it did then. So our sex life now is amazing. It's constant. Which is where That's it was right. when we first got married, which is awesome.
1: Do you think you so, slide back into other addictions? Like I know heroin is different. It's a different kind of addiction. Do you think he's um susceptible to other addictions as well?
2: Well, everybody's susceptible to something. So he he has a personality where it's always more. So he picks things that are not detrimental to his health. So right now, tattoo is his thing. So he's got a sleeve and his back is done and he's doing his chest now. So that's fine. He's addicted to the Dallas Cowboys. So let's go to the game. Let's get prep a tickets. So that's fine. As long as it's not heroin and opiates and things that are going to destroy him and us, I'm like, go for it. Uh, he right. The a- worst thing
0: that could happen with the tattoo is that he'll run out of skin eventually.
2: Right. So I've got some time. I'm like, go for it. You know, that's what makes you happy. And the reality is what he spends on a tattoo is what he would spend on heroin anyway. So it's not a financial, you know, big burden or anything. It's not like he's going out and buying boats. He's not doing anything over the top. But if he were, I would say we need to rein this in. Just I just try to keep him plugged into something that keeps him excited and fun and interested. And that's what keeps the addicted brain, off the drug. That's the the key to it. You have to have a purpose in life, a passion, and something you enjoy. Because heroin is a downer. And downers are numbing from life. Things you don't want to deal with, you use numbing drugs, which are complete opposites of cocaine. That's the party drug.
1: Right. In your business, you deal with um, rehabilitation of all kinds of addictions, correct? Correct, yep. So when you're looking at your own life and what you're okay with, Uh, Is it weird to justify what you're okay with versus what you're okay with in your own life versus what your clients are okay with? I only ask because my partner runs a youth shelter and he has like a a across the board no drugs, clean lifestyle because he feels like it's a bit odd to be both sides.
2: I love that question. I was waiting for you to ask me that. So I specialize in harm reduction, which basically means the lesser of the evil. Because the addicted brain will always have something to the excess. Now, for me, a lot of my clients will do marijuana. I don't consider that a problem. Unless it, you're not going to work and you're playing Xbox all day, because that's the worst you're going to do on weed, go for it. Um, a lot of my clients are social drinkers. They'll give up the heroin, but they'll go have a beer or two. Go for it. As long as it's not ruining your health, your financial, your relationship, you're fine. And... It depends on the drug. So opiates and benzos like Xanax and clonopin, they're not drugs you can do on harm reduction. They're not drugs you can do a little bit here and there. You can have a little bit bit of wine. You can have a little bit of Coke. You can have a little bit of weed. Um, You can go to the strip club once in a while. That's not a problem. When you start doing something that makes you do it every single day or you'll get sick, that's a problem. So the rule with my clients is no benzos, no opiates. Beyond that, if you can manage it, let's go for it.
0: What advice would you give to anybody listening right now who thinks that they have a partner who might be using and maybe their partner isn't being honest about it? Like, how do you how do you get to the bottom of it and get to the truth?
2: What I always say is talk to a professional first, because if you address the issue, they're going to deny it immediately. And then you now have a discord between the two of you where they're on the defensive. Talk to a professional first. Let us hear the scenario and see if we can weed through that and see if they really have an issue or they're doing something else. Give you an example. I had a woman call me and she swore her husband was doing drugs. And after listening to the scenario, I said, I think your husband's cheating. I think that's your problem. I don't think he's doing drugs. I think there's another girl. So I gave her some things to do to, to research to see what he was up to. And she came back and she said, you're right, dead on. So it may or may not be drugs or alcohol. It could be something else. Um, I had another one. We kind of ruined the surprise. He called me thinking she was cheating. And I kind of gave him some stuff to do. And he called back and he goes, oh, my God, she's planning a surprise party. And I just figured it out. So (laughs) He he thought she was drinking. because She was going out meeting the party planner and and doing all this stuff at night. So I said, just act surprised. We'll, We'll put it back together. You act surprised. So it just depends. Have somebody... Help you navigate it before you confront them, because you don't know if you have the right information, and you may not know what to look for.
1: Uh, going back to the book, you work in addictions counseling for a living, so being able to separate yourself and look at this from sort of um, a detached point of view is maybe more possible, even though it is about your own life and your marriage to your husband. But what was it like for Tim to lay it all out there, to and to have it? sort of examined by his peers and family and friends.
2: So you're going to find this funny. My husband's an entertainer for a living. So when the idea of writing a book came up, he was the one who brought it up. He said, let's put it out there. And I kind of looked at him and I went, what? Because I I had a very abusive childhood. And he said, let's put that in the book. And I haven't talked about that yet. I hadn't done that. So he said to me, he said, first of all, it'll entertain our friends and family. It will." help you set your haters up, and why not? Why not put your story out there? So we did. Now, after we did that, I had a lot of friends of mine privately message me on Facebook and email and call and say, we want to hear your story. Because this is more his story, and my story is more like you know, abusive father, blah, blah, blah. So they want me to do my story now. So now we're talking about doing a second book of my upbringing. And what it's like to have, you know, like a fatherless girl, what it's like to have no father coming, you know, growing up and building a brand and a company. And how did I do it? Because that's been the question. So now it's kind of it, now it's really personal. So, so for me, you know, doing the story, he's the one who wanted to do it. He put it out there. He had fun doing it. He loved writing it. It was tougher for me. So I guess it's just kind of different for him.
1: And what was it like going through the editing process and through the writing process with your spouse? Like beyond all the issues and the emotion wrapped up in your marriage and addiction, you then had to work together and go through that all over again.
2: So it was easy for him. He would, write his, he would write his chapter and then email it to me and go, my chapter's done. And I'd be sitting here staring at a blank screen for three days. And he would go, where's your chapter? And I'm like, oh, so difficult. So he actually wrote most of his before I even had mine started. And then I started doing mine. And then I called um, an editor and I said, I'm struggling with this. And he said, why? And I just said, because it, it is so personal. And he goes, just record it on audio. Just just talk into your phone. So I did. And I sent it to him. And then he transcribed it. And he sent it back. And he goes, is that easier for you? And I said, yeah. So my section was more audio. I did a lot of audio and had it transcribed. Because it's hard for me to sit and write it. So it was done differently. and then. They sent us the book back and we went through and we edited it, edited, edited it the whole thing and then we sent it back and then they edited it. The whole thing takes about a year, year and a half. So it took a while. And my next book is sitting here on my desk. It comes out this week. So that's taken another year, a little over a year. So what's that book about? Um, This is completely different. This one's called The Seven Key Principles to Tap into the Wealth Inside You and it's how to find purpose, passion, in life, how to overcome limiting beliefs, how to find a roadmap to success, and how to jump. Because every company I've had, I've started with less than 100 bucks and just did it. And people are shocked. They're like, how'd you do that? So this is sort of what I teach my clients, not only like getting sober, figuring out your life, what's your purpose in life, what's your passion, limiting beliefs, getting rid of the stuff your parents told you, letting go of that and jumping and doing what you want to do despite other people telling you you can't. So it's sort of how I coach my clients on addiction. And then people have come to me and say, how did you do what you did? So this is like that book.
0: So the book you, you have the new book coming out and the book we were talking about is called I Married a Junkie Put to the Ultimate Test by Addiction, Love and Life. Dr. Caliastes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. This episode is over, but the conversation doesn't have to be. Follow Hillary and Sandra on social. Instagram at HillaryOnAir at Sandrakiss1053. Twitter at Hillary Welch at SandraKiss1053. And on Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. Got a question? Email Hillary and Sandra, the quick and the dirty at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can download the podcast each week to your mobile device to listen offline. Find the quick and the dirty on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts.